Open up your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Joel. Um, You get to the big boys there, Ezekiel, Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, past Hosea, what we just covered. Should have a bunch of notes there to that white space in your Bible called Joel. No one probably haven't had no notes written there. Nobody preaches on this book, but we are today. Have pastors, young pastors ask me all the time through my work with Liberty University, they'll say, how do you preach? And I usually say, I don't preach, I teach. Because people don't need to hear me filter what God says, they need raw truth. Um, I tell them, preach Romans, preach Daniel, preach Galatians, preach Hosea. The Bible's full of truth and stories that you don't have to filter. Um, The Bible is not the springboard by which you dive into a message. It is the pool itself. We're going to swim around in a couple of chapters today. If you're not used to good uh, USDA choice uh, Bible study, uh, then you're in for a treat today. This is good Bible study 101. We're going to ask the question, what did it mean to that original audience? What does it mean timelessly and the timeless theological truth? And what does it mean to me? Um, this is a book uh, that is very important among the minor prophets. There's 12 minor prophets. This is minor prophet number two. They were minor in size only. They have a major message. And here is the message. Hopefully you've sensed it through this whole worship service. It's been about people in places of desperation. The message of Joel is simply this. When we turn in desperation to God, he turns to us. You see it on the screen there? When we turn in desperation, he turns to us. Say it out loud and prayerfully own this truth. Here it is. Ready? One, two, three. When we turn in desperation, he turns to us. So this book called the book of Joel, his name means Yahweh is God. Yah-el. Yah, short for Yahweh. El, short for Elohim. Yahweh Elohim. The Lord is God. There is no other God. Against the, the backdrop of ball worship and other kinds of of false gods, those false gods that own your allegiance and own your attention. They're, they're, They're fake, they're false, they're dead, they're empty, they're temporary and purposeless. But God is your true God. He's the only one you can turn to that will meet the needs that you have in your heart. Uh, When you, as C.S. Lewis said and others have said, that when you've seek and long for something in your heart and you try to fill it with all sorts of other things and uh, you, you find no satisfaction, it's because that desire in your heart is heavenly. It's made, you were made in that desire for another world and God is the only one that can meet that. And this book puts it in the context of desperation. The context of Hosea, the, the past book, was about personal heartbreak of a family Right, Joel's message grew out of national calamity, the invasion, first and foremost, of a plague of locusts. We'll talk about that. But ultimately, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and then eschatologically at the end of days, pointing to what we know as the Battle of Armageddon. All right, we'll cover that. This book of Joel is full of deep theological truths about sin, about humanity's sin nature, about judgment, repentance, about the giving of the Spirit of God. You're going to see a prophecy in the third chapter of this book, mentioned in the second and into the third, about the giving of the Spirit of God. Why is this book important? It's important because it talks about a crucial 
a crucial event called the Day of the Lord. That phrase was first mentioned chronologically in the book of Obadiah, but it's this book of Joel that elaborates on it. It's going to be mentioned five times, so let me talk about that first. The Day of the Lord has a typified or a non-technical use for those things that God does in history to get a hold of a nation, to judge a nation, right? Disasters that come upon a nation in order for God to intervene to try to get a hold of them. In your life, it is not just typified in, say, locust plagues and natural disasters, ecological disasters, but it's also typified in your life and the things that God does to break you down and get you downwind of yourself, to put so much on your shoulders that it breaks your back and bends your neck. You know, there's, there's an often misquoted Bible verse that says, God won't give you more than you can handle. That is not what 1 Corinthians 10 says. says, God won't let you be tempted beyond what you can handle. No, no, God is in the business of giving you days of the Lord that are just epic, right? You, you have them. Think of the year or multiple years when it was too much and it broke you. And you had what we would say in our southern language here, you had a come to Jesus meeting, right? I can think of 1991. I can think of 1993. I can think of 98. I can think of 2009. What's your year? What year was it? What comes at the front end when you had more on you and you in desperation called out to God and he met you in the middle of it? Say the year. One, two, three. Say the year. Maybe you could say other years, but most of you said at some point you had that. May today be that for you. If you're here today and in the movement of a true worshiper, you're desperate for more of him because this world's founts, this world's wells have been, uh, you've drawn from them and they will not satisfy you. And so you go to the cistern of the Savior and you draw from him today and you're desperate. This is about troubled times right? When you can go through something and you feel God taking back his blessing or God bringing natural disaster, you, you had too much on your plate maybe this last week. Maybe there's too much emptiness in your home and you're coming to God and you're saying, I want more of you. You're in good company because this text today is going to give us eight things that you can do. Now, I call these grand gestures, when somebody comes to me in marriage counseling, I say, you need to do a grand romantic gesture. When somebody's cold to God and they, God feels far away, God feels angry in their life about their sin, God feels distant, God has removed blessing and there's something in there and they just feel far from him, I talk about grand redemptive gestures that he does and that he's already done. And you can respond in grand repentant gestures like we talked about last week in the book of Hosea. Here's going to be eight. Things like fast. Things like stop everything and go away. Stop everything and come to Christ and only seek him. Maybe you need to take off of work and you need to go to that cabin. You need to go to that, that place, that closet. You need to go to that time in your life. You need to reverse, maybe retrace your steps to that camp that you were close to him at. You need to stop and seek him. Maybe it's you need to well. Like the song we just sang, you need to cry out to God. I gave you an opportunity to do that last week. I hope you took it. That's what you're going to see in this text. So the day of the Lord 
typified, the day of the Lord personal, but ultimately there is a technical day of the Lord. Chapter three, we'll develop it. We'll talk about it next week. This book is pretty simple in its form. It's two parts, right? Past days of the Lord, future days of the Lord. A day of the Lord that begins with the catching up of the church called the rapture, entering into a seven-year period of time we call the tribulation. The seven years of trouble, the day of Jacob's trouble, the missing week of Daniel, these seven years is God reconvening his work to get a hold of his chosen people, the Jews. It's for the Jews. And in Revelation chapter 6 through 19, the church is missing in all those chapters because the day of tribulation, the day of the Lord, is that time period. It is it is put as an exclamation point in history in a great battle we call the Battle of Armageddon. We'll talk about that. We'll highlight that next week because this book will give prophecy towards that. So the day the Lord typified and the day the Lord prophesied. That's how you break this book down. All right, so let's look at it in a typical way. It looks in the nation Israel. It comes as a result of a locust plague. Look at verse 1. The Lord, word of the Lord came to, jo, to Joel, the son of Puthel. Hear this, O Israels, and listen, O inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? What's he talking about? A little bit later, who say it's a locust plague. Locust plagues are nothing new in Bible, nothing new in history. We saw it in the Exodus. We're going to see it at the end of days. One of the seal judgments is another locust plague. This is not something that is disconnected from our 21st century reality. Madagascar, just three years ago, was decimated by a locust plague that went across, destroying within just a few days 50% of their crops. Watch this video about the locust plague of Madagascar. For three quarters of an hour, a giant swarm of locusts about 15 kilometers long crosses Madagascar's National Route 7. This road is normally popular with tourists who come for the breathtaking views. But today they're observing a natural disaster, a plague of locusts which has already destroyed half of the island's crops. They can create a lot of damage. They eat the pastures and then also the rice and the corn, which is about to be harvested. According to experts, there are currently 100 swarms across Madagascar, made up of about 500 billion locusts. And they get through around 100,000 tons of vegetation every single day. There's already not much rice. Not many people have more than 10 hectares of crops. So after the locusts, there's nothing left for our women and children to eat. The cattle have nothing left to eat either. So we're left with nothing once the locusts have been here. Madagascar was hit by cyclone Haruna in February, and the floods created a perfect breeding ground for locusts. Authorities tried to kill them, but the swarms were simply too big. The measures taken weren't enough, and so we had a locust invasion. In one day, we counted five swarms over a distance of 20 kilometers. It's extremely serious. All of the Malagasy population is affected. Madagascar is still waiting for over $40 million in aid to finance an emergency plan over three years. But donors haven't yet given the green light. The big problem here is that we don't have money, so we can't buy pesticides and we can't buy enough fuel all at once. The field officers, the managers can't do their work. And while we're not working, the farmers suffer 
and the locusts multiply. The locusts have already destroyed 50% of the country's rice fields, a staple food for Malagasy people. Authorities are calling for the aid to be released quickly before half of its population goes hungry. At Mount Sinai, God had told the people that if they turned from him and they sought other gods, that he would intervene and judge. And one of the judgments of that time period that he said they would, he would send would be a plague of locusts. It is a total judgment. And by the end of chapter 1 in here, you're going to see it even goes down to the starvation of the animals. The animals don't have anything to eat. All right, so we're going to start at the beginning and go through. I want you to notice and circle uh, the eight primary commands of this. In verse 2, circle the phrase, hear this. If you like to write in your Bible and, and uh, you have nothing there, this is some good things to, to write. Hear this, and what are we going to hear? Well, first I want you to notice who's being commanded here. Hear this, O elders. In the nation Israel, they had priests who teach the people law. They have prophets who call the people back in their sin back to the law. But here he's talking about the elders. The elders were the older men in the, in the faith who knew better, who had lived through other things. And what he's saying here is when calamity hits, you need to start talking about the past and about what God got you through. What he's saying here is he's calling the people to listen. If you are in a place of desperation, you need to hear from another believer how they got through it. That's why God has given you the church. Part of the joy of having a church family is there, I guarantee you, there is somebody in this church who's gone what you've gone through. There is no temptation except that what is common to man. 1 Corinthians 10 says, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can handle. He will provide for you a way up under it so you can stand up and you can get through it. But he's gonna use people. So that you know that death of that child, that, that death of that marriage, that loneliness you feel, that empty nest syndrome, that midlife crisis, that struggle with that child. God knows what you went through and so do a bunch of other men and women in this place. So the first thing, you're going through a desperate time to get very, very practical. You listen to other people. Are you desperate enough to hear from other people's experience or to tell your own experience? Until you are, you're not going to really get help out of it. So if you want to continue to wallow in your pain, don't reach out. Don't ask for somebody else. But if you have had enough, if you are sick and tired of being sick and tired, you go get help. We saw that two weeks ago in Hosea. You see it here. You call our Christian Counseling Center. You come to me at the end of our, me our meeting here in the commons area. You grab my hand and you say, this is what I'm going through. W what do I need to hear? You've been given two ears and one mouth. You need to hear, listen, twice as much as you talk. Who are you listening to? Whose words are large in your ears? You gotta listen to the right voices in order to make the right choices, amen? Listening to the right voices, making the right choices. Here it says, elders speak up. You elders in this room that are leaders among our faith family, you better be looking for people to tell your story to, looking for people to help. That is what an elder does. And in national calamity like we see our nation in, in calamities like we saw with hurricanes, we speak up and we share and we love. Here, he says in verse 2, hear this, O elders, listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? No, this is unique. So you tell the, your sons about it. When God gets you through it, you have a special level of desperation and a special level of deliverance. 
you tell your children, let your sons tell their sons, and their sons the next generation. Question, those of you that know your Bible, does that sound familiar? Verse 2 or verse 3, tell your sons about it, let your sons tell their sons, and let the sons tell the next generation. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6, 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And we shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Deuteronomy 6, 5. Deuteronomy 6, 6, you need to tell the next generation the mighty things the Lord has done. And you put it on the doorpost of your house, you make it public. And you put it on the frontals of your head, you make it personal. You wear it. Wear your deliverance, moms and dads. And the rest of that chapter 6 and all of chapter 7 is about moms and dads telling about the things they went through and how God got them through it. That's this. He goes back to an old, old method, which is moms and dads not hiding the stuff they go through from their kids, but allowing their kids to have an inside view of the struggle of life so that their kids are able to get to a place when they go through it and they can say, yep, mom and dad got through it. I can get through this. Verse four, what the gnawing locusts have left, the swarming locusts have eaten, and what the swarming locust has left and the creeping locust has eaten and what the creeping locust has left and the stripping locust has eaten. I, this is not four different insects. There are nine different Hebrew words for locust and they all point to the same basic large grasshopper, right? And these swarming grasshoppers have different stages. I particularly think this is different stages of development. All are called swarms. The, the grasshopper that can't fly causes a ton of damage, less, more, I don't know, than the swarming flying locusts. So at different stages of development, these locusts destroy. And in your life, you've had different calamities that have come upon you in life. You need to talk about it all. Talk about it all. So are you desperate enough to hear from others' experiences? Secondly, look at verse 5. Awake drunkards and weep. Now, this is the only sin in this book that's named. And, and the prophets often condemn drunkenness. Hosea 7 did, Amos 4 does. But here he's, I think in my mind, he, he, he is, this person, this drunkard, maybe represents all casual people coasting through life from one happy hour to the next, where they get up and they go through their hard day just wanting to get to that glass of wine, wanting to get to that beer, and then everything will be okay. Instead of looking to Christ... For their happy hour, they look to that glass and that inebriation. Now, I see a lot of eyes trying not to look at me here. <laughs> if this is you, you're in good company because that's probably a lot of people in our culture. So this is basically saying to you, when you go through de desperate times, if you self-medicate, you miss what God's trying to do. You miss the opportunity to share it to your next generation because you just inebriated yourself, you numbed yourself through it. That is not appropriate for the Christian. God does things to you, to do things in you, to do things through you. And when you get drunk to live through it and to just survive, you short circuit that whole process. God does things to us, you numb yourself with it, and God does nothing through you. Right? It self-medicates it and puts it off for another day and another day and another day. And God will not work through that situation. You have essentially aborted the baby that God wants to deliver in your relationship. So here he says, to those going through calamities, you wake up and stop getting drunk to, to solve your problems. Are you desperate enough to seek a different happy hour? I hope you are. I hope you are. Look at the next part here. 
And well, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. There's, there's a good reason to weep. There's no more wine. The crops, there's, there's famine in the land. The crops have all died, and there's no more wine. No more wine this season. We'll see that in verse 10. Maybe no more wine in the next season. Verse 6. He gives a comparison here. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. This locust swarm, its teeth are like the teeth of a lion, and it has fangs of a lioness. And it attacks the, the two most crucial things, these essentials of Hebrew life. It has made my wine a waste, my vine a waste, and my fig tree splinters. Notice the word my. Circle the word my. Joel believes that all of it belongs to the Lord. It's not yours, it's God's. And wine in this day was the, the normal drink. It was, they drank it like water because oftentimes you could not trust the sanitation of the local water. But when you fermented it and turned it into a wine, sometimes stronger, sometimes weaker, but they would drink this as a way of, of sanitation. And he says it's all being destroyed by these locusts. Right? Verse 7 it has my vine away, it has made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. So it's a call to wake up. All right, here's the third thing. Making our way. We're moving fast. Wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth. Now that is rough. A virgin, this should not be. This is a grim irony here. For the bridegroom of her, of her youth, she will not make it to her wedding day. This should not be. Verse 9 gives the context of this. That's what it ought to be like, but here's the context. For the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. No more Lord's Supper. This is referring to worshipers. So elders, listen up. Drunkards, wake up and wail. Worshipers, another call to wail. Another call to mourn. Right? From the house of the Lord, the priests mourn, the ministers mourn, the field is ruined, the land mourns, the grain is ruined, the new wine dries up, rise up fresh oil fails. Job names all, Joel names all these crops that have been ruined. Here it's, are you desperate enough to own up to how bad your life is? Are you desperate enough to be transparent? Has your life become so bad that you can't hide it anymore? If that's where you're at, you're in a good place. When was the last time you wailed over your sin and the short-sightedness of your life and the superficiality of your life and how your sin has found you out? When was the last time that got to your tear ducts and you were transparent with your junk? This is who the Christian is. We do this often. We don't fake it till we make it. We, are, we own up to our problems. We are a local chapter of Sinners Anonymous. And all of us, if, if, you, if you think your life is perfect and there's no problems and you think you found a perfect church, you haven't. This is not a perfect church. We are an imperfect people. And if, if you think you're perfect, we don't want you here because you're going to mess up what we got going on. We are all messed up people. And in the process of it all, we found a fount by which we have been satisfied. And our superficiality has been thrown out the window and we are deep with him because we found a deep well that no one can plummet its depths. It, you cannot exhaust what Christ has for you. And in the process of your cleansing, if you come fake, you will never find that level of deep cleansing your soul longs for. But if you come honest and wailing, you'll find him. 
I can't tell you how many times I've gotten on my knees, flat on my face, bawling my eyes out over who I am and what I've done and what I've become. My teenage years, maybe it was ha-ha, funny, funny, the stupid things that I did, right? You, that old joke, in your teens and 20s, you sow your wild oats, and in your 30s and 40s, you pray for crop failure. <laughs> but it's not funny anymore. I'm ashamed of it. And that's what he's gonna say to the next person. He's gonna say, verse 11, be ashamed, O farmers. The efforts of your year have gone for nothing. You climbed that corporate ladder, that relational ladder, that mortgage ladder, and you realize that that ladder you climbed all your life is leaning against the wrong building. And you're ashamed of it, and you know it. That's a good place to be. Be ashamed, O farmers. This is a call to be ashamed, where you're, it's so bad that not only are you transparent, you own up to your humiliation. I've wasted my last decade of my life. And you can own up to that. And until you do, you can't get to where God wants you to be. Are you that desperate to be transparent about your humiliation? I hope you are. Be ashamed, O farmers, wail, O vine dressers. Now he lists representatives of every crop. For the wheat and the barley, because of the harvest of the field, it's destroyed. The vine dries up. The fig trees fail. The pomegranate, the palm also, the apple tree. All the trees of the field dry up. Now look at the last phrase of verse 12. Circle this. Indeed, rejoicing dries up. Is that where you are? Man, you're not singing. There's no hop in your step. Everything's dried up. You're rejoicing. You barely are getting by. Here, if you want to move beyond that, you have to acknowledge what you've been living for and the emptiness of it. It's a call to be ashamed. Now, verse 13, we get the next one. Let me read 13 and 14. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O, what does it say? Priests. Now he's moved on from the farmers to the priests. Well, O ministers of the altar, come, spend the night in sackcloth. O ministers, notice the phrase, my, my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. My God, your God. You see that? He reminded them of their duties. My God, your God. Your ministers. Your duty to bring the uh, needs of the people before God. And to lead those people in spiritual worship to the temple worship. So you are intercessors and you are leaders in worship and you failed them. You did not teach them. It got short-circuited because people didn't teach the laws and the truths and the absolute truths of Scripture. They taught their own filtered version of whatever the people wanted to hear, right? And church after church after church does this. And we want to be different as a church. We want to hear raw, unfiltered, megaphone truth. And this is this text. He says, you wail over how you fall so short, this is a call, though, verse 14, uniquely. We've already seen well twice. He told the drunkards to well. He told the farmers to well. He tells the priests and the pastors to well. Be, feel bad for what's happening to your nation. Feel bad for what's happening in your family. Don't feel proud of all that you've done. You're not the perfect parent. You're not the per We're not the perfect church. We're not the perfect elders ministry. We're not the perfect nation. We have problems, and we own up to it, and it hurts. And when we own up to it, we can deal with it. But here's something radical. Verse 14, consecrate a fast. 
In this verse, you're going to see four elements of Hebrew spirituality. Here it is. Consecrate a fast. When things are so bad and you feel God is so angry, it's time to fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. You come together. Gather the elders. Get the leaders there and all the inhabitants of the land. Call everybody to the house of the Lord. Come together and come to the temple and cry out to the Lord. Plead to the Lord to be their savior. So what is this? This is a first, this is a call to fast. When you get so desperate, you're gonna try something truly spiritual. A fast is a spiritual exercise of desperation. It's not just something you do in order to have a spiritual discipline that moves you down to realize that God is all you need. That is part of what a fast is, that you do it weekly, you do it monthly so that you can have an exercise to remind you you don't even need food. You can go without food for a while. Yes, you can. I know I don't look like I go without too much food, but I can go without food. And it is a great exercise that shows that my puppet strings are not attached to this earthly needs. I can control in the spirit of God. I can control the lower urges of my body. But when you find yourself desperate, it's time to fast. When you find yourself in a place where you think God's angry to you, at you, because of your sin, it's time to fast. And so you take that which is most important to you. You take that which you think you can't live without, and you live without it for a while. All right? Are you desperate that enough to display your desperation spiritually? It's a good place to be. Number six. I think the rest of verse 14 is you stop everything and you seek God. Some of you, your marriage is holding on by a string. Your parenting is holding on by, your mental health is holding on by a thin wire. And you, if you're desperate enough, you'll stop everything and you'll have a come to Jesus meeting. You'll take off of work, you'll go do a retreat, you'll spend time with our counseling center, you'll stop everything and you'll seek the Lord. I've done this at least five times in my 24 years of walking with Christ. And in that, I fasted, I wept, I laid out, I splayed myself before the Lord. I bent my neck in bowing as well as physical weeping. And guess what? He didn't show up the first day. So I did it again the next day. I remember one time I went to my family's ranch, it was about 2008, I said to the staff, hey, I'm gonna go for a day or two. I don't know how long it'll be. It was four days. And on the fourth day, boy, did he meet with me. Like Jacob in Genesis 32, you wrestle with the angel and you do not let go till he places his blessing of his spirit back on you until you know where you need to be. That's huge. Keep reading, verse 15, alas for that day. For the day the Lord is near. Assyria is knocking on the door. It's a northern army. We see that in chapter two, verse 20. It's a northern army. It's gonna destroy them and it does. For it will come as destruction from the Almighty. That is the first occurrence of the phrase, the day of the Lord. Circle that. It's going to be mentioned five times, but this is the first time in reference to the locust. Has not food been cut off before our eyes? Gladness and joy from the house of the Lord our God. The seeds shrivel under the clods. The storehouses are desolate, gone. The barns are torn down, gone. The grain is dried up, gone. Starvation has gone to the animals. Look at this. How the beasts groan, the herds of the cattle wander aimlessly because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of the sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I cry. Joel called only to God for deliverance from this disaster. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and the flame has burned up in the trees of the field. It is so, such a great famine, such great drought that fires are coming out and the locusts have left it that barren. 
Even the beasts of the field pant for you. That's why I read that verse from Psalm 42, verse 1. As the deer pants for the water. It is in the context of great judgment. This is not some, as a deer pants for, it's not that kind of happy, clappy song. It's I am violently in need of you, Lord Jesus, and I'm gonna die if you don't come into my life right now. That's how desperate he wants you to be for him. Where you aren't going to let go of him until he comes to you. There's the beauty of it. The beauty of it, he's desperate for you. He wants you. He held nothing back for you. But here I think he's pointing to the animal kingdom and its starvation to say the cosmos, creation is groaning because of this judgment. In the end of days at the battle of Armageddon, there will be groaning of the creation. Chapter two, all right? Two more radical gestures. Here's the second to the end. Number seven, blow a trumpet in Zion. This is a, this is a shofar, it's a ram's horn. You blew it to call people into worship. You blew it to call the armies together. And you blew it as an alarm. And I think it's there. This is an alarm. But notice the theological significance. Look at the next phrase. And sound an alarm on my holy mountain, Zion. It has a religious meaning. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For there is God is doing something spiritual in the world. The day of the Lord is coming. It's future here. Surely it is near. I think chapter two, this first part, is referring to the Assyrian captivity. The Assyrians are coming. Now he describes the army of the Assyrians now. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness as the dawn is spread over the mountain, so there is a great and mighty people. This is not locusts. Locusts, this is about people. By the way, locusts have not left anything to eat, so why would the locusts come back? All right, next verse. There has nothing been anything like it, nor will there ever be anything again. I think this is hyperbole. To the years of many generations, this is bad stuff. The Assyrians are going to do something horrible here. A fire consumed before them, bringing destruction. And behind them, a flame burns. burns. They leave destruction. Ancient armies would often do this. They burn the fields. They're coming in front of them. Destruction comes before and comes after. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness afterwards. And nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. Locusts don't look like horses. This is not locusts. Okay? And they like a war horse, so they run. With a noise of chariots, they leap on the top of mounds like the crackling of a flame, a fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. Before them, the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers. They each march in a line. They do not deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into houses. They enter through windows like a thief. Before them, the earth quakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day, number three, the day of the Lord is indeed great. Third occurrence. And very awesome. And who can endure it? This natural disaster in chapter 1 is followed by a national disaster where an, an, an army comes. Can God, is God this powerful to use earthquakes and locusts and Assyrians and Babylonians and Muslims to judge this world? Can God do that? Can he use other nations to judge the nation you're in? Yes. And this view of ecological disaster and national disaster, Joel's view is that God did it. God's allowing it. 
Now, verse 12 gives us our final turn. Are you desperate enough to blow your trumpet? Are you desperate enough to warn others? That's number seven. And here, look at verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. I love this is, in my mind, this is the key verse of the whole book. Yet even now, it's not too late. Your spouse says it's too late. Your child says it's too late. That job says it's too late. That medical doctor says it's too late. But when you have a sovereign God who can call his son out of the grave, when you have a sovereign God that can stop the moon and the stars in their place, a sovereign God who can part a Red Sea, a sovereign God who can take a sinner and change your very nature and place you into a position of a saint, a God who can do that, it's never too late. It is not too late for your marriage. It is not too late for your, your mental health if you feel like you're going crazy. It's not too late for that hurt that you had that's been festering in your heart for years. You can't quit repeating it. You're hitting the replay button in your mind, that hurt that you received, that person that denied you, that person that rejected you. You can't get out of that hurt. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. You have too many people saying, no, you can't. This says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me. See, your problem is you're separated from God. Even as a Christian, Dr. John Hanna, my history prophet, Dallas Seminary, said when it comes to getting people to a place of salvation, that's easy. Taking a Christian and getting them to pray a wholehearted prayer, that's hard. Because we're so good in Americanized Christianity, it's superficial religion. This text is saying God wants a total commitment of your heart. How did he say it to the church of Laodicea? I'd rather you be hot or cold than lukewarm. He says, look at this, return to me with your heart. Did I read it right? I didn't read it right, did I? With all your heart, total. And look at what he adds. He adds everything he's already said with fasting and weeping and mourning. Verse 13, you come in here and you rend your clothes and you feel bad about this and that. No, no, I don't want you rending your clothes. I want you rending your heart. Look at verse 13. Rend your heart, not your garments. Don't go through the motions. Return to the Lord your God. Return to Yah-El. God, your covenant God. The one who did what he did. Return to him. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Do you have a cross reference for that? Look at your study Bible. Do you see a cross reference for verse 13, the last part? What does it say there, Nate? Do you have a cross-reference? Jody? It says Exodus 34. This is a phrase, a word, a, a, a statement given 1500 B.C. Here we're about 700 B.C. 700 years ago, he goes old school. He goes to Mount Sinai. He says the reason you return to God is he's so good. He's compassionate. He's gracious. This is John 3.16. He says go old school. Have a come to Jesus meeting. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him, whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind and even a grain offering, a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet. He is compassionate. He will come to you in your time of need. Get everybody there. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Stop the honeymoon. This is so important. 
Get the men out of their honeymoon. Get the women out of their honeymoon. This is so crucial that you gather people together in this time of desperation. Let the priests and the Lord's ministers come together and let them weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among people say, where is their God? He is still here. He has not left. Okay, we'll cover verse 18 through the end of chapter 3 next week, but... Notice the restoration. Notice a call to fully return. And there's a great verse in the next section that says, all that the locusts have taken, verse 25. Then I will make to you, I will make it up to you for the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the creeping locusts, the stripping locusts, the gnawing locusts, the great army which I sent among you. I'm gonna restore you. Do you believe that God can restore you? He can restore you out of your hurt, your habit, your hang-up. He can restore what you've lost, what that bottle has taken from you, what that career that you've sold your soul to has taken from you. Can God restore you? Absolutely he can. There are some in here who believe it a lot more than you believe it. And so we'll believe it for you. As a minister of the gospel of Jesus, you can get back what this world has taken from you. Now, it won't be dollar for dollar. We're not preaching some prosperity gospel that says, God, some the world took 10 grand, he's gonna give you 20 grand back. It's not that kind of thing. He will give you what this world cannot give you. God gives gifts that this world cannot give, and those are the better gifts. And it's not Winnebago's and, and Breckenridge homes. It's ministry, it's a voice. It's your words loud in your children's ears. It's sleeping well at night because you know whom you serve. It's your husband looking at you and seeing you as a godly woman and honoring you and holding you high. It's your wife looking and saying, that's my husband. I'm so proud of him. Wouldn't you like that? That's what I want. And I have it because God has given that as you seek him with all your heart. How desperate are you? It's the question of the day. Are you as desperate as the guy from Utah, 2003? You remember the, the story of of. Aaron Ralston, he was in Utah hiking and a rock fell and pinned his arm to the, he was in a canyon, pinned his arm to the canyon wall. Remember what he did? What did he do, Richmond? Took out a pocket knife, a dull pocket knife and cut his own arm off. True story, no urban legend. And then he had the, 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 the frame of mind to repel 65 feet, go through the canyon and repel 65 feet down. I don't know the order there. That's pretty desperate. See, what this world needs is that kind of desperation, not shallowness. I love this quote from Richard Foster. I end with it. Superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant satisfaction is a primary spiritual problem. The desperate need today is not for great numbers of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. And I don't know what it's gonna take for you to quit faking it and go deep with Christ, but I beg you to, I ask you to. God wants you to. Let's pray towards that end. Lord, I, I ask that tear ducts would be opened, that hearts would be rended, that people would stop and seek you with all their heart this week, that there would be some that would go into a fast, that one of these eight things would be theirs to get back what this world, what this enemy has stolen. This enemy called our sin nature, this enemy called the world that is under the demonic influences of the ultimate enemy, 
Satan himself. Three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they've taken so much from us. And we have bit in hook, line, and sinker to it. But today we, we go deeper with you, owning up, ashamed of all that's happened. Weeping and wailing for that which we've lost, for what has been lost from our nation. I grew up in a day when, uh, when I didn't have the phrases like kidnapping and all the, that. Was, it's crazy what has happened to our world. What we see in our government, what we see in our politics. And I, I'm, I'm, I feel great sorrow for the world that my kids are growing up in. It is a messed up world. And I wail for that. Father, I just cannot imagine what the next generation, what my grandkids are going to have to endure. But Lord, I pray that you would heal my family, heal my city, heal my state, heal my country. Lead through the leaders of this place to turn back some of these trends that we see. But we know ultimately it's going to take you stepping onto this planet, Lord Jesus, in a great battle, a battle of Armageddon. Lord Jesus, we need you. Our hope is not in Trump's or in Congress's or in laws or in America. Our hope is in you and you alone. Lord, if you would come this week, it would be great. Come, Lord Jesus, come again. Rescue us from this world. In Jesus' name, amen.